You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at our annual conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. Today's episode was recorded live at a committee lunch event featuring Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt discussing his book, President Carter, The White House Years, as well as his experiences with trade policy, foreign policy, intelligence collection, and judicial nominations while in the Carter administration while he was White House domestic policy advisor. Please enjoy Ambassador Eisenstadt's talk and visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, to hear the audience Q&A session. largest audience I've spoken before, but it is uh, among the very most distinguished, and I appreciate the public service of so many of you here. Jimmy Carter's political idol was Harry Truman, and he placed his famous slogan, the buck stops here, on his old office desk. Both presidents left office widely unpopular. Over the decades, Truman is now remembered more for his achievements and his failures, And I'm hopeful that my book will have a similar impact in causing a reassessment of Jimmy Carter as president, not simply as an admired former president. He was, in my opinion, the most accomplished one-term president that we've had, backed up by two independent surveys indicating that almost 70% of all of our legislative proposals were passed by Congress just under the percent of the legendary Lyndon Johnson, who was my first uh, boss in the Johnson White House. He respected the office of the presidency. He respected the institutions of the executive branch and the role of the press. Walter Mondale, as vice president, put it succinctly, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace. The rap on the Carter presidency is summarized by, excuse my southern accent, four eyes, inflation, Iran, inexperience by Carter and his Georgia Mafia, and inter-party warfare with Senator Kennedy and the Democratic uh, liberal wing of the party. And I do not in any way in this book gloss over them. I'm absolutely candid about the mistakes that we made. But I believe that they have totally obscured many of the successes and achievements that I saw at his right arm. And I felt that while there were still living eyewitnesses able to talk about it, and before history's verdict was indelibly sealed as the Carter presidency being one of failure, that it was important to give a reassessment, a complete picture, without in any way, again, trying to diminish the mistakes, but to make clear that it was also an administration of significant successes. The authenticity of the book is underscored by 
a trait I have, whether bad or not, going back to college and law school, and which I brought into the White House, which is being an inveterate note-taker. I have over 5,000 pages of verbatim notes of every meeting, every phone call, everything in which I was engaged. I amplified that with over 350 interviews of everybody in the administration and those outside, both critics and uh, supporters, who impacted on the presidency and on the decade I'm writing about. Uh, and I think that that provides a unique view of this presidency. But if I may say so, and I think the critics have said as well, and Brian was good enough to mention some, and Washington Post said the same thing, a view of how the presidency works, of the hothouse atmosphere of working in the White House, of the tremendous pressures that exist, the bad options from which you often have to choose. It's also a book about the decade in which we work. And so let me just briefly talk about and take you back to that because you can't understand the Carter presidency without understanding the forces at work during the 1970s. It was in many ways the beginning of the unraveling of the post-World War II consensus, hastened by the first military defeat in Vietnam that we had ever suffered, by urban violence, and by a decade of so-called stagflation, slow growth and high inflation that bedeviled three presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Carter. It was also a decade that saw the rise of a whole new set of movements, some of which we felt but didn't perhaps appreciate fully. The environmental movement, the consumer movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, and also as a result of Roe v. Wade, the pro-life movement. It was a decade in which the ascendancy of the Christian political evangelical movement, based heavily in the South, arose, led by Jerry Falwell, who accused Carter, who was the most religious, perhaps, of presidents we've had in modern times, of not being a real Baptist and of harboring homosexuals on the staff, none of whom I uh, saw in my daily work. And that coalition was put together by Ronald Reagan in 1980, in defeating Carter for a variety of reasons, taking the moral, the silent majority of Richard Nixon, the sort of disaffected blue-collar workers, and marrying it to the evangelical movement, and that's very much the political base of our current president as well. It was also a decade, and I know that this is an audience heavy, heavily interested in national security issues, it was a decade in which the Soviet Union was at the apex of its power and influence. Huge military expenditures, Jim Woolsey, uh, the Navy, the Soviet Navy had really begun to come to parity and, and, and was a risk of overtaking us. They were using Cuban proxy troops to cause problems in the Horn of Africa. They were supporting Euro-communist movements, particularly in Italy. Uh, a very, very aggressive posture. It was also a, a decade in terms of foreign policy in which there was the beginning, and more on that shortly, of the rise of a new power, China. It was a time in which a 
Polish-born Pope, Pope John Paul II, together with Carter, with human rights, again more on that later, gave hope to the nascent democratic movements in the East Bloc and what's now the former Soviet Union. And of course it was a decade in which a cataclysmic event occurred, which presidents ever since have had to deal with, and that is the first radical Islamic revolution, establishing a radical Islamic republic. Let me run through quickly some of the domestic issues, and then I'll focus more on foreign policy again because of the audience. The first, and I think in some respects most important, was that the energy security we enjoy today is significantly based on the foundation of the three major energy bills we passed during a four-year period, which deregulated the price of natural gas and crude oil and bloody battles to encourage more domestic production, which put conservation at the center of America's consciousness, backed it up with regulations and, and laws on uh, emissions and fuel economy standards, and inaugurated the new era of clean energy with tax credits and other incentives for solar and wind and even symbolically putting a solar panel on the White House. Carter was also a great consumer champion, appointing consumer advocates, not industry stalwarts to regulate the industry from which they came, with a mandate for deregulation, for competition, for choice, and back that up with major legislation for the deregulation of trucks, of rail, and of airlines. Really democratized air travel. I dare say that we wouldn't have the kind of JetBlues and Southwests and UPS and FedEx air cargo systems that we have without that deregulation. And we didn't stop there. We began the deregulation of telecommunications, inaugurating the cable era. And for those of you who are lovers of local craft beers, we even ended the prohibition era uh, restrictions on craft beers uh, through uh, deregulation of the beer industry. Carter was a great environmentalist, taking on very popular water projects, which were both costly and environmentally damaging, but doubling the size of the entire national park system which Theodore Roosevelt created through the Alaska Lands Bill, and did it over the fierce opposition of the Alaska delegation, and concluded it in appropriate Carter style by taking a giant map putting it of Alaska, putting it on the Oval Office rug, getting Senator Stevens, who was the longtime Republican senator, and pointing out every mountain stream, every range, what would be in, what would be out, what could be open for development. And Stevens said to us afterward, I can't believe the president knows more about my state than I do and I've represented it for 25 years. <laughs> Remember that we won the election in 76 significantly because of the revulsion at Watergate. Carter came as an anti-Washington, I'll never lie to you. And this was not just rhetoric. We put ethics really at the center of our domestic policy. So the ethics law of 78, for the first time, required disclosure of assets for senior officials going in, gift limits when you were in office, limits on lobbying going out, 
the inspectors general were created in our administration, Michael Horowitz's report and so forth, and you see an inspectors general report from some agency almost every week. We created the Office of Special Counsel, if that sounds relevant. Uh, we had the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, civil service reform, all district court judges, and Stuart, you know, we're talking about, and others working with uh, Shirley Huffstetler. Well, I mean, the fact is, all district court judges were appointed based on merit selection panels. So let's go back a couple of humorous anecdotes. I got caught up unwittingly in the $25 gift rule because there was a profile done of me in a business magazine saying that I had a great love for the little tiny one-cent Tootsie Rolls that we all may have had when we were kids. And so the Tootsie Roll company sent me a giant box, like a two-lifetime supply of them, and having young kids, I thought I'd be father for life, only to find out from the legal counsel that he wasn't going to count every damn one of them, but it was probably over $25, and so I sent them back to the CEO with a letter explaining our new high ethics standards. And it seemed like a good solution, except a year later, there was a profile in another business magazine of the Tootsie Roll Company, and the CEO said, Eisenstadt tried to have it both ways. He sounded high and mighty with their new ethics. We opened a box. It was totally empty. So we're still trying to find the Secret Service agent who took our Tootsie Roll. Uh, but more seriously and more relevant, the first target of the special counsel was none other than the president's chief of staff, Ham Jordan, who Roy Cohn alleged, that's the hatchet man for Joe McCarthy, uh, to save a client who owned Studio 54, alleged that Ham had smoked the snorted cocaine. Cost him a million dollars, but the important thing of relevance today is Carter never criticized the investigation. He never tried to undermine it. He let the process go forward as it should have. This Southern president also appointed more women and more minorities to judgeships and senior positions than all 38 presidents before him put together. If anybody's seen the RBG documentary, she's quoted in my book of saying, if you want to know why I'm a judge, it's because Jimmy Carter appointed me to the Court of Appeals. And this was one of dozens and dozens of appointments uh, that, that we made. And we also saved New York City and Chrysler from bankruptcy. Carter created the modern vice presidency, made it a real partner, taking an office that was an afterthought in the Constitution and had been held in disrepute, and really made it a full partner. After we won the 76 election, Mondale submitted a list of 10 requests, <coughs> access to all doc classified documents, the ability to go to any meeting he wanted, one-on-one -on -one lunches weekly with the president, all were accepted. And Carter even added one more, which is putting him in a West Wing office just down from the Oval Office. We all know location, location, location is critical, not just in real estate, but in government. And he became a full partner. One of the great surprises in the book, maybe we'll get to it in the question period, is notwithstanding that I'm the only Carter aide who knew then, and I disclose now, that he came within a hair's breadth of resigning as vice president. Carter's, I think, sort of Achilles heel domestically, but also his most courageous act was dealing with inflation. We inherited high inflation and it got worse during our administration, in part, but only in part, because of the Iranian revolution that cut off an oil 
which had the same impact as the OPEC oil embargo had for Nixon in 73. Gasoline lines, double-digit inflation, uh, and it hit us right in the solar plexus. Carter said to us in 79, going into a re-election campaign, I've tried everything, anti-inflation czars, budget cuts that have alienated the liberal wing, wage and price guidelines and sanctions, procurement sanctions, nothing's worked. I'm going to take tough medicine and I'm going to appoint Paul Volcker to head the Fed, knowing because Volcker told him in a sort of classic meeting I describe in the book, that he was going to employ very tough monetary medicine. He was going to tighten the money supply, raise interest rates, raise unemployment, and squeeze inflation out of the system the hard way. And Carter said, I'm going to do it. I don't want my legacy, even if it means my re-election, to be giving the country permanent high inflation. And he never complained during the entire election period about the medicine that Volcker was doing. He was not the beneficiary. Inflation didn't go down fast enough to help, but in the first year of the Reagan administration it did, and we're the permanent beneficiaries of what Volcker did and Carter allowing to do. Now in foreign policy, I think that the signal achievement and really an act of great personal presidential negotiation unequaled, including Woodrow Wilson in World War I, before or since, was at Camp David leading up to and then including the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Carter poured over intelligence records so he understood Sadat and Begin, what their red lines were. He took them to the Gettysburg battlefield on the first Sunday to underscore the fact that five wars were enough, a sixth would be unthinkable, and then in 13 agonizing days and nights, he drafted 20 separate agreements, negotiated separately with Sadat and Begin because they were like two scorpions in a bottle. They did not get in the same room together except at the first handshake at the beginning and the last at the end. And one anecdote again, which is very, very telling. On the 13th and last day, the last Sunday, we were close but not there with an agreement, and Begin said, and he was not bluffing, Mr. President, I can't go any further. I've made all the concessions I'm going to make. He had an LL plane waiting to take him, and Carter, realizing this would totally undercut Sadat's historic trip, could inflame the Middle East and, of course, his own administration in the process, knowing Begin's love of his grandchildren, wrote separate inscriptions on eight photographs of himself Begin and Sadat at Camp David to his grandchildren, walked him over to Begin's cabin, handed it to them to Begin and saw him as he read the names of each, with his lips quivering and his eyes tearing. He put his bags down and he said, Mr. President, I'll make one last effort and the rest is history. It's an agreement that has stood now for almost 40 years. It's critical to Israel's security, to the stability of the region, and to U.S. national security. Human rights. Human rights was put as a centerpiece for foreign policy, and it was not at the time a sort of dewy-eyed uh, notion. It was employed in two respects. First, with respect to the military autocrats and dictators 
and this was very controversial with neoconservatives and Republicans, with pro-American military dictators, anti-communist dictators, and the democratic movements that eventuated came because of his human rights policy. Thousands of prisoners were released, and we activated those movements. We reduced arms sales to them, and we married it to what was the single most difficult Senate campaign, and that is the Panama Canal Treaty. Remember that overwhelming percentages, I mean like 80% of the American public, was opposed to giving back our canal. And ironically, the two critical people to get two-thirds of the Senate to pass a highly unpopular treaty were a man that I highlight in the book of small physical stature, but in my opinion, a giant of a man, Howard Baker, who was the minority leader and knew by supporting it he would end his presidential hopes of getting a Republican And the most unusual was none other than Republican Senator Hayakawa from California who coined the phrase, it's our canal, we stole it fair and square. <laughs> and Mondale got Hayakawa on the phone with Carter. We were desperate for every vote we could get. And Carter said, Senator, what can I do to convince you to vote for this? You know all the arguments. He said, no, I understand those, and you understand where I'm coming from. What I want is I want to be able to use my vast experience to see you every two weeks in the Oval Office and give you policy advice. And Carter said, every two weeks? Senator, I wouldn't want to limit you to that. <laughs> Flattered, he voted for it. Carter never had to see it. <laughs> the normalization with China. Nixon and Kissinger deserve all the credit in the world for the opening to China. It was historic. They did not normalize relations with China because of the force of the Taiwan lobby. Perhaps Nixon would have done it in the second term, but they didn't want to take that lobby on. We did. The Taiwan Relations Act, again, another bloody battle succeeded, and we normalized relations with China. It was part of a Cold War strategy. We saw them as leverage. But this goes back, and I'll tell one anecdote here, and then go back to human rights in the Soviet Union. So I was in a cabinet room when Deng Xiaoping, all four foot eleven of them, came into the cabinet room, and I remember saying to myself, how does this little guy control a billion Chinese? And he says, Mr. President, I appreciate you restoring diplomatic relations. What I really want, this may sound very current, is the lowest tariff levels on our products that you give to your most favored uh, trading partners. And I know he said the Jackson-Vanik law aimed at the Soviet Union. They can't get it because they restrict immigration. We don't. And he took a White House notepad and a pencil, pushed it over to the president, and he said, you put on here the number of Chinese you'd like us to send you each year. A million? Ten million? <laughs> and Carter laughed and said, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal right now. I'll take ten million Chinese a year if you'll take ten thousand American journalists a year. <laughs> So let's deal with the Soviet Union, a preoccupation of a, a number of you at the time and, of course, Russia today. We employed, uh, employed both soft and hard power. The soft power was human rights, which we saw as being an attack on their soft underbelly for the minds and hearts of people around the world. Carter reached out in the first week of the administration when we were just going to start the SALT II arms control negotiations 
and answered the Sakharov letter, the head of the dissident movement, Nobel Prize winner, who pleaded for help, and publicly Carter said, I'll give it to you. We reached out and supported the Soviet Jewish movement, emigration double for Soviet Jews. And Sharansky, Nathan Sharansky, who was the most famous, of course, uh, Refusnik, has an op-ed piece in the Post today, and come to that in a minute. Uh, Sharansky says, Carter saved my life by asserting publicly in the midst of his trial that he was, in fact, not a Soviet uh, a spy for uh, the U.S. We applied hard power as well, and here is perhaps a controversial statement, but one backed up now by many studies, including a very new Pentagon study on Harold Brown's tenure, and by Robert Gates's interview, one of the 350 I've done. Namely, that much of the foundation upon which Ronald Reagan built in his <coughs> defense buildup, for which, again, he deserves enormous credit, was on the foundation Carter laid. We increased defense spending 3%, after Afghanistan, 5%. We green-lighted the MX missile, intermediate nuclear weapons in uh, Europe, the stealth bomber, long-range cruise missiles. All of these were started in our administration. Reagan built on them and built on them well. But we started it. And after Afghanistan, and I'm very frank about the conflict between Vance, who was dovish, and Zbig Brzezinski, who was hawkish. It, it really was a transcendent problem. And just an anecdote on that, during the transition, after we won uh, in 76, I was the only staff person sitting in with Carter and Plains for the CIA briefings. And during a break, he said to me, Stu, you, you, of course, you've been the policy director during the campaign. You work with Zbig and, uh, and uh, Sy on the Foreign Policy Task Force. Uh, I'm thinking of appointing Sy Secretary of State and Zbig as National Security Advisor. If it was the President, each would be good in their position. Don't appoint both together. Why? I said, because they have diametrically opposite views on the central issue we'll be facing, which is the Soviet Union. I can handle it. He said, well, he didn't handle it well until Afghanistan. And when Afghanistan happened, he clearly went into, uh, into Zbig's camp. I think that's the real reason Sy resigned. And the Afghanistan policy was really tough. A grain embargo a month before the Iowa uh, caucuses. Uh, the boycott of the Olympics, remembering the 36 Olympics in Moscow, real blow to their prestige. Increasing defense spending 5%, sanctions on all sorts of high-tech equipment, and the so-called Cotter Doctrine saying that any further intrusion into the Gulf by the Soviet Union would require a military response by the U.S. So we certainly didn't cause the unraveling of the Soviet Union, but I think we deserve uh, a footnote at the very least in that prospect. Now, the area in which I am most critical in foreign policy and which we live with now is, of course, the, the Iran uh, situation. It was the coup de grace to the Carter presidency without question. So let's talk about that briefly. I don't think it's fair to suggest that Carter is responsible for the revolution uh, and the exile of the Shah, any more than it's fair to say Eisenhower is responsible for the Castro Revolution 90 miles from our shore. There are a whole set of factors which I go into. Could we have done more 
to prevent Khomeini from coming over? I think we could have, but that's another story. But where we, and I'm very, very critical, is that this was one of the great intelligence failures of modern times. Jim headed the CIA, not then. Uh, one of Carter's classmates did. And he admitted in the interview, he said, we let the president down. Number one, they did not realize that the Shah's domestic support rested on quicksand. They didn't realize, can you imagine, for the Shah of Iran, who was our principal ally, upon whom presidents had, since 1953, lavished tens of billions of dollars of arms, our most sophisticated airplanes and so forth, did not realize that for five years he had been treated for cancer, did not understand the impact of Khomeini's incendiary cassettes from his exile outside Paris in Iran. A huge intelligence failure. Now, Carter also made, in my opinion, a mistake in how he handled the hostage crisis. Zbig and I separately recommended immediate military action, not dropping bombs, but blockading the harbor at Carg Island, through which about 60% of their oil came, or mining it. Instead, Carter met with the families of the hostage, uh, hostages and said, my number one goal is to get your loved ones back safely, which he did, but at enormous cost. He also holed himself up in the White House to show he was spending full time on this crisis, which only gave the Iranians more leverage and caused even more press attention. The Nightland program of Ted Koppel started because of this. Walter Cronkite, who was then the dean of you know, CBS and television reporting, every single night he ended his broadcast, night 106, night 204, night 308. It was devastating in sapping our ability to operate, and we had several agreements to release them, and each time Khomeini would veto it. The final straw was, of course, the failed rescue mission, and I go into considerable detail on this. It failed, by the way, not because there were too few helicopters. Carter actually added additional helicopters to the minimum six that the military wanted. It failed because at that time there was no joint command. It was created afterward. We started that, and Reagan continued it. So you had four military services that had very little opportunity to practice together, an extraordinarily complex maneuver that required all sorts of Station 1, Station 2, Station 3, before you even got to uh, the embassy. And when that helicopter's rotor blade hit the C-130 cargo plane and eight servicemen died in flames before the rescue effort ever got off the ground, those flames engulfed the administration as well. After the administration, after the election, in typical Carter Fish, the day after the election, devastating loss. I mean, we won six states, six states. He said, we've got two and a half months. Let's make it profitable. We got the Superfund done. We got the hostage deal done. We got the Alaska lands bill done. And then, in an anecdote which could never happen today, we got a future Supreme Court justice name. This happened in the following way. 
I get a call after the election from Ted Kennedy. Stu, there's a vacancy on the First Circuit. I'd like the president to appoint Steve Breyer, who, you know, worked with you on airline deregulation, brilliant professor of Harvard Law School, etc. I said, stop, he's great, he's terrific. He was a great help to us. We wouldn't have gotten airline deregulation. But I said, there are two insurmountable hurdles. What are those? Number one, there's no love loss between Carter and you. He thinks that you helped split the party, you never reconcile, and you hurt him badly. And he said, I know that's why I'm asking you instead of the board. <laughs> he said, what's the second insurmountable hurdle? I said, Strom Thurmond is going to be the chairman. We lost the Senate, too. He's going to be the chairman of the Senate Judiciary. Why in the world would he want a lifetime appointment to go to a Democrat? You take care of Carter, I'll take care of Strom. Okay, so I go in with my legal pad. i got ten reasons why. And I said, to begin with, forget who asked for this. There's a vacancy. Steve Breyer would be a great asset. He winked and he said, I'll do it. Okay, so I called Ted. I said, okay, I've done my end of the deal. How about Strom? He said, Strom is in the bag. I said, in the bag? I mean, you guys are polar opposites. He said, Steve has breakfast every morning with Emery Sneedon, who's Strom's chief of staff. They have a great relationship. Strom respects Breyer, and he's going to give it. Now, I'll tell you, many years later, for a lecture series I have in Atlanta uh, for my late parents and now late wife, Steve Breyer spoke, and I decided I was not going to give him just a resume introduction, so I looked at the hearing records for the First Circuit and the Supreme Court. I swear to you that if you blot out the name Thurman, you would think it was Kennedy praising him rather than Trump. You would never see that kind of bipartisanship today. Now, there are rich profiles in this book, which I don't have the time to go through, sufficient to say that they could come out of a Shakespearean play, from the tragic to the uplifting, from the humorous to the villainous, uh, and they make for very good reading. The one that I will mention and close on is Carter himself. Here's someone who came from a gnat-infested 500-person hamlet in southwest Georgia. And when I say mad infested, you have to go there. He's the only one who could hold a press conference and never worry about the gnats. Somehow they never seemed to attack him. And he made it to the Oval Office. How did he do it? Indefatigable campaigning, yes. But understood in 76, particularly in the Democratic primary, that the even Democratic voters were not looking for the second coming of the great society. They wanted honesty and integrity. They wanted someone who would not be connected to all the problems in Washington. And he put together a very improbable coalition, very unstable, but he did it. He was, in many ways, the first new Democrat, conservative on fiscal issues, progressive on race and poverty, a sort of liberal internationalist, valuing our allies, valuing our alliances, valuing engagement, a free trader. We did the Tokyo round. I, I hope nobody throws anything at me when I say free trade. Um, and yes, his negative was too much attention to too much detail, for sure. And I'd lay it out. I mean, I would get memos back with circles around misspellings or improper grammar, and he wanted additional background materials or decision memos, and I always thought that was a huge disadvantage. I'm beginning to think over the years and that maybe that's not such a bad way of making decisions. But he had an odd view of politics. 
He was a ferocious campaigner. But his view, once he was in the White House, was to park politics at the Oval Office door, to do what he considered the right thing, to take on the tough issues, and hopefully to be rewarded for them. It was a strength and a weakness. The strength was it enabled him to take on Panama and the Middle East and energy and other unpopular causes for which he paid huge political prices. It was a weakness because the president is not only commander-in-chief, he's politician-in-chief. He has to keep a governing coalition together. And that was clearly uh, a, a problem and a weakness. So I'll conclude, and again, taking your, your questions, by saying that I'm not nominating him in this book for a place on Mount Rushmore. But I do think he belongs in the foothills with many other presidents who made significant contributions to a stronger country and a better world, and that's the basic argument of my book. Thank you, and I'll be glad to take your question. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. To hear the Q&A session with Ambassador Eisenstadt, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also find the Standing Committee on Law and National Security on Twitter at ABA NatSec or on our Facebook page. And while we love to see you online, remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or at our annual conference. The annual review conference will be in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. And if you are at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago, please come to the Attacks on Our Institutions of Democracy panel hosted by the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security and the ABA Judicial Division this Saturday, August 4th at 1.30 p.m. at the Hyatt Regency Chicago. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.